welcome to the first Cory Doctorow podcast of 2021, and the first one in quite some time, and the last one for quite some time. I had a great December in Europe, despite the fact that two-thirds of the events that I went to Europe for were cancelled, ended up not going to Belgium or Germany, and hunkered down instead in the Netherlands, first in Harlem with my friend Marichka Schalke, the former MEP, and then in Amsterdam, and... Um, It was a very good time, even though everything was shutting down at 5 p.m. I chose Amsterdam because when I looked at the time, it looked like it was more open than other cities in the region that I was traveling through, and it turned out to be the most closed of them all. In fact, the city went into complete lockdown just as I left. I flew out at 5.10, and at 5 o'clock, the whole country went into lockdown. And after that, I went to France, where my in-laws and the rest of my immediate family all met me up for two weeks in the Alps, where I got to try out my hip that I had replaced in September and ski on it. It was a trip that about three-quarters of the people who were supposed to come to didn't make it to because of COVID. So it was a very weird trip. The village was very empty. The lifts were very empty. It was a very well-ventilated kind of break and also very fraught and scary because of the potential of Omicron all around us. And now I am back here in Los Angeles, having avoided Omicron, according to a PCR test that I took yesterday. And I am about to have my other hip replaced, my left hip, on Tuesday. And so this is the last podcast I'm going to record for quite some time because it'll be a while before I'm up to sitting in a chair for a long time and recording and not so stoned on painkillers that I can and so on. Thank you for everyone who sent good wishes about this. It's not anything I'm particularly anxious about. The other hip replacement was so smooth and easy that I'm pretty confident that this is going to be fine and that I'm going to recover quickly and well. See above regarding going skiing on my artificial hip. That said, I am keenly aware that for probably about a month, I'm going to be out of the mix to a greater or lesser extent. And I have a lot to do. I have to finish this little brother story that my experts are reading now about pipeline protests. I have to write another little brother story. In fact, two more. One about bioscience and insulin hacking and the other one about remote invigilation and test taking. And I'm working on a short story about financialization and homelessness for MIT Tech Review's 12 Tomorrows. So all of that is in the mix. I'm also doing final edits on the book that Rebecca Giblin and I wrote together about the copyright industry. And I'm working on Picks and Shovels, the second book in my new series that starts with Red Team Blues that'll be out in early 2023. So all of that is going on right now at the same time as I'm trying to recover from this hip stuff, as well as all the EFF work that I'm doing right now. And um, it comes to a lot. And so I'm not planning on putting out a podcast probably till at least mid-February and maybe longer than that. And I hope that you will be healthy and safe while that goes on. I am going to finish recording this and then wrap up the remaining loose ends and go for one final hike with my wife, the last one I'll be able to do for quite some time. And then I'm going to pick up my parents at the airport because they're flying in to help me with the post-recovery Michigas. My mom has now had six joint replacements. So if you want to know how it is that a 50-year-old man is getting both of his hips replaced, blame it on my mother's genes. So she is quite good with this kind of thing. She really understands the aftercare. So it's going to be great to have her around as well as my dad. It's great to see both of them. 
So this week for this final podcast before my major surgery, I'm going to read to you my latest Locus column, a column called Science Fiction is a Luddite Literature. And if the subject of Luddism interests you after you hear this podcast or after you read the column in Locus, I have a couple of further resources for you. The This Machine Kills podcast has been doing a lot of stuff on Luddism, and I actually appeared on one of the episodes there. If you type This Machine Kills Cory Doctorow into your favorite search engine, you'll find the MP3 of that episode re-recorded. And then there's also some good Luddite literature coming out. Brian Marchant, who edited How to Destroy Surveillance Capitalism for Medium, he has a book coming out about Luddism in the months to come. I'm blanking on the title, but if you look for Brian Marchant, spelled like merchant, and Luddism, you will find his book. It's also in his Twitter bio. As for my Twitter presence, I will be around a little in the weeks to come. Judging from my previous experience, I'll be lying on the sofa doing crossword puzzles and flipping around on Twitter and trying to read novels and just being sort of desultory and uh, recovering and doing my physio. So you might catch me there, but please forgive me if you tweet at me and I don't reply because I'm not always up for that from the haze of the recovery. Anyway, without further ado then, science fiction is a Luddite literature from the January 2022 edition of Locus Magazine. From 1811 to 1816, a secret society, styling themselves the Luddites, smashed textile machinery in the mills of England. Today, we use Luddite as a pejorative, referring to backwards anti-technology reactionaries. This proves that history is written by the winners. In truth, the Luddites' cause wasn't the destruction of technology, no more than the Boston Tea Party's cause was the elimination of tea, or Al-Qaeda's cause was the end of civilian aviation. Smashing looms and stocking frames was the Luddites' tactic, not their goal. In truth, their goal was something closely related to science fiction, to challenge not the technology itself, but rather the social relations that governed its use. The critique of Luddism as anti-technology is as shallow a reading of the Luddites as the critique of science fiction as nothing more than speculation about the design of gadgets of varying degrees of plausibility. In truth, Luddism and science fiction concern themselves with the same questions, not merely what the technology does, but who it does it for and who it does it to. The Luddites were textile workers, skilled tradespeople, who enjoyed comfortable lifestyles because they commanded a hefty portion of the money generated by the product of their labor. What's more, it took a lot of labor to weave fabric, and as a result, cloth was incredibly expensive, as were clothes, naturally. The advent of textile automation upended everything. It didn't just reduce the amount of labor that went into a yard of cloth. It also created unprecedented demand for wool, leading to the mass eviction of tenant farmers to make way for sheep, and cotton, supercharging global slavery. Textile automation also produced a lot of textiles, obviously. These were cheaper and often finer than the textiles they replaced, and transformed ready access to clothing of all sorts from a luxury for elites into something working people came to expect. You couldn't ask for a more science fictional setup. Someone invents a couple of gadgets, and everything changes. 
A whole industry of skilled workers is threatened. Ancient settlements are razed and replaced by sheep. Their residents turned into internal refugees wandering the land. Slavers sail around the world, murdering and enslaving distant strangers to feed the machine. The entire material culture of a nation is transformed. Guerrilla warfare breaks out. Machines are smashed. Factories are put to the torch. Guerrillas are captured and publicly executed. Blood runs through the streets. The Luddites weren't exercised about automation. They didn't mind the proliferation of cheap textiles. History is mostly silent on whether they gave thought to the plight of tenant farmers at home or enslaved people abroad. What were they fighting about? The social relations governing the use of the new machines. These new machines could have allowed the existing workforce to produce far more cloth in far fewer hours at a much lower price while still paying these workers well. The lower per unit cost of finished cloth would be offset by higher sales volume, and that volume could be produced in fewer hours. Instead, the owners of the factories, whose fortunes had been built on the labor of textile workers, chose to employ fewer workers, working the same long hours as before, at a lower rate than before, and pocketed the substantial savings. There is nothing natural about this arrangement. A Martian watching the Industrial Revolution unfold through the eyepiece of a powerful telescope could not tell you why the dividends from these machines should favor factory owners rather than factory workers. The Luddites did what every science fiction writer does. They took a technology and imagined all the different ways it could be used, who it could be used for, and whom it could be used against. They demanded the creation of a parallel universe, in which the left fork was taken rather than the right. This is many things, but it is not technophobic. Using Luddite as a synonym for technophobe is an historically insupportable libel. We're living in quite a Luddite moment as it happens. Many of us are contesting the social relations surrounding our technologies. Should we continue to subsidize big agriculture? Should our cities continue to be organized around cars? Should tech giants be permitted to continue to gobble up each other and their small competitors, reducing the internet to five giant websites, each filled with screenshots of text from the other four, to quote Tom Eastman. Some of that contestation is happening in the streets, some at the ballot box, some in boardrooms, some is happening at high-level meetings like COP26 in Glasgow. To mangle William Gibson's rallying cry, the street is desperately asserting its right to find its own use for things. Luddism is the key to resolving the tension in some of our most important labor and technology debates. For example, labor economists have long decried automation as de-skilling, a way to decompose skilled labor into a series of easy tasks, which weakens the bargaining power of workers by allowing employers to replace them more easily. But automation isn't solely disempowering. It also lifts people up. Today, thanks to automated machining tools like CNC mills, someone with very little training can do a lot of fine machining for themselves without having to bother a skilled machinist. Democratizing access to the means of production isn't intrinsically anti-labor. It's only bad for workers when the bounty of automation is disproportionately allocated to the small number of capital owners and not the workers. The history of science fiction is rife with stories of people who seize the means of production. The classical problem story, in which an engineer has to figure out how to repurpose some machine or system to make it work in ways its creator never intended, 
is at root a story about technological self-determination. It's a story that says that the person who uses the machine matters more than the person who designed it or bought it. You don't have to turn to cyberpunk to find this ethic. When a Heinlein character like Kip Russell uses duct tape and ingenuity to save his friend's life on the lunar surface and have spacesuit will travel, he is unilaterally remapping the social relations of the technology he depends on as a matter of life and death. Kip Russell is a Luddite, convinced that his own welfare is more important than the intentions and choices of the company that made his spacesuit. The difference between de-skilling and democratizing isn't what the gadget does. It's who it does it for and who it does it to. Imagining new ways of arranging those factors is profoundly science fictional. The Luddites weren't merely science fictional either. They took their names from King Ludd or Captain or General Ludd, a mythological titan who supposedly led their shadow army. The Luddites spun tall tales about this later and signed his name to letters to the newspapers and factory owners. King Ludd was a creature out of fantasy, an imaginary giant who was often depicted as towering over the factories that were the objects of the Luddites' rage. A secret society bent on remaking the social relations for technology who claimed to be led by a mythological giant? That's Fanish as hell, a golden age fantasy science fiction crossover worthy of an ace double. Well, all right then, I will talk to you when I talk to you, mid-February-ish? let's say. And in the meantime, while I'm out, one more little nota bene, which is that I'm going to celebrate the 20th anniversary of my work with the Electronic Frontier Foundation and my career as a digital rights advocate, which is pretty cool. It's been an amazing couple of decades. Thanks for coming along for the ride, and I'll see you when I see you. You've been listening to the Cory Doctor podcast, licensed under Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike US 3.0. Or as Woody Guthrie put it in another context, this song is copyrighted in the US under seal of copyright 154085 for a period of 28 years, and anyone caught singing it without our permission will be a mighty good friend of ours because we don't give a dern. Publish it, write it, sing it, swing to it, yodel it, we wrote it, that's all we wanted to do. Many thanks to John Taylor Williams for mastering. That's Rynex Studio, W-R-Y-N-E-C-K Studio at gmail.com. John Taylor Williams is a full-time self-employed audio engineer, producer, composer, and sound designer. In his free time, he makes beer, jewelry, odd musical instruments, and furniture. He likes to meditate, to read, and to cook. Talk to you next week.